Good morning. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I think some of you might have been watching me on the telly, is that right? Whoa, isn't that special? Uh, now it really is good to be uh, with you live. Um, and if, you, if you're new here, I'm Steve Messer, and uh, I'll be, I'm hoping to be here much more regularly this year. Uh, that, that's the plan. Uh, now, I've just done that, and I should hang on. Now, we're going to try to make this work. Ian's going to press the, the button at the same time as I press my PowerPoint, and hopefully this is, we, we're going to communicate. We'll see how we turn out. All right. Now, we, uh, I'd like to, um, to preach on Psalm 1 today, but before we do that, we'll pray. So let's, let's uh, talk to God and just commit our time to him. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Uh, we praise you that you're a God who's revealed himself. You've revealed yourself in nature. Um, you've given us a world and a universe that invites us to look at it and to, to wonder and to notice its regularity and order and beauty. Um, but you're a God who's spoken to us through your word and you've spoken supremely through your son, the Lord Jesus, whom we worship and adore. Uh, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us today in your written word and speak to us more uh, about your son, uh, our saviour. And so we ask that as we uh, gather and as we commit our thoughts to you and as we uh, consider your word that you would speak to us afresh. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're starting a series on the Psalms. Uh, we're going to be preaching on the Psalms up until Easter. Uh, and uh, the Psalms are a great collection of, of individual poems. Of course, they were originally meant to be sung. Uh, we've lost the tunes, but what we've got is the words. And uh, the words, of course, were written originally in Hebrew. So as we read them now, we're reading, it, reading them in English. Uh, and one of the, the particular geniuses of God is that these songs, these poems that were written in another language are, are very wonderfully able to be translated. Now, a lot of our poems, uh, I particularly like Australian bush poetry, Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson. Any people out there still remember them? You know, uh, I, I like them because they rhyme and they've got rhythm, right? But the genius of Hebrew poetry is that it doesn't depend on rhyme and so it can be translated into other languages. Uh, so you couldn't really translate the man from Snowy River easily into another language. You'd have to change all the rhymes and things. Uh, but the Hebrew poems that we've got here you can translate quite readily. And, and so they come into, into another language uh, and, and preserve their meaning really quite beautifully. And isn't that wonderful of God to, to use that medium? I think it is. Uh, but Psalms have been called an anatomy of the soul, right? So if you go to a doctor, you hope that that doctor has studied their anatomy. You hope that the, the, the doctor would, would know every part of the human body. Well, the human soul is who we are deep down at our core and you'll find every aspect of the human experience reflected in the 150 psalms that we've got all of them and so the psalms they're, they're good to make your daily companion it would be a good thing if christians read the psalms more uh, i often recommend to people who are really really struggling with life read the psalms Make them your own. Pray them back to God. Because the Psalms, as much as they're poems, as much as they're songs, they're actually prayers. And here's the wonderful thing about the Psalms. They're prayers that have been written by God 
for his people to pray back to him. So have you ever found that you're not quite sure how to pray? I think any honest Christian would have to say there are times in their life when they're not quite sure how to pray. Well, go to the Psalms because they're prayers that God wrote. And you know you're on safe ground when you're praying a prayer that God wrote. Right? Now we'll talk more about that in other times. But um, hope, have Psalm 1 open in front of you. That would be very helpful as we uh, work our way through it. But uh, here's a question for you. Uh, what's the best that life can offer you? What do you most want out of life? Well, I'm going to give you the answer, what I think is a sensible answer. The answer is, if you have any brains at all, you would sincerely desire above everything else that life can give you to be blessed by God. Does that make sense? Right? Does blessing sound like a good thing? Well, it is, right? It's as good as it gets. And so to have a life that's blessed by God, that's the best that you can get while you're alive and beyond. What does it mean to be blessed? It's a word that we use a lot. Uh, it's a word that you'll hear increasingly out in the world. But what does it mean when we say, God, please bless granny or God, please bless me? What do we mean? What are we asking for? Well... It's a word that gets used a lot. Um, so have you ever come across the custom of saying, bless you, when someone sneezes? Does that still happen? It still happens out in Mafra. I think it still happens in Warrigal too. Um, bless you. You know why we say that? A lot of people probably don't. But isn't it funny that we've got customs that people continue to observe that are very, very old? I think I find this fascinating actually because on the one hand they tell us that Christianity is old-fashioned and out of date. And yet people keep doing old stuff that they can't even explain. <laughs> like saying, bless you. Apparently, it stems from very, very ancient custom that people believe that when you sneezed out, your mouth being open, you were letting out some of your spirit. And they thought, if the good spirit's going out of you while you sneeze, then maybe a bad spirit will jump in to replace it. And so Pope Gregory made it a rule that when Christians saw another person sneezing, they should say, God bless you. Because that would hopefully counteract the possibility that an evil spirit might leap in when you sneezed out. That's the theory. But these days you'll find it on Facebook and all the other social media. There'll be people who are trying to explain to others that things are going pretty well for them. And rather than say, I've been lucky, they'll say, I've been blessed. Or if they've been really blessed, they'll say, I'm so blessed. Have you noticed that? Um, occasionally you'll find people who object to this. So I found one woman who wrote a blog on the subject of being blessed and she said when people say, she's sick of people saying that they're blessed on their Facebook posts. Uh, she says it's almost like what they're saying is I'm better than you because God has given his divine seal of approval on me. Uh, but lots of people don't think that luck is enough to explain how well they're doing and so they say oh, I've been blessed. Uh, the, the question then would become by who? If you're looking for a brief apologetic opportunity, if you're looking for a way of just slightly, just subtly interjecting in, into the world, if someone says, oh, I've been blessed, it would be a, a sensible question to ask if you thought you could get away with it. By who? Because blessing has to come from someone. The universe blesses nothing. The universe is just there. Blessing has to have a source. 
Well, Psalms, the book of Psalms, all 150 of them are particularly interested in the subject of blessing. So Psalm 1, look at it there, it begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, don't be too worried if it says man, it means everybody. That's just the language that was used at that time. Blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. But if you were to skip down to the end of Psalm 2, which we'll be looking at next week, you'll see blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the kingly son, the king, right? Uh, so Psalm 1 begins with blessing, Psalm 2 ends with blessing. That's very interesting. Um, if you were to have a look at it like this, uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man, Psalm 2, blessed are all, that's putting a frame around the beginning and the end of the t- first two Psalms, which is a very interesting thing. Now, did you know that there's five books of Psalms? Have you noticed that in your Bible? I had noticed it years ago, but I didn't know what it meant. But if you read the Bible in a print edition like this, you'll see at the beginning, book one, just above Psalm 1. You see that there? It's book one. If you went to the beginning of Psalm 42, you'd find book two. And so the book of Psalms is actually divided into five books. Now, every one of the Psalms in the first book has a little heading on it that tells us that it was written by David. It was written by or to or for King David. So have a look at it there. Sometimes they're written in in italics. But Psalm 1 and 2 don't have those headings. And so scholars believe that Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to introduce not just book 1 but the whole collection. So this is like a window into the book of Psalms. And so we're going to look at Psalm 1 this week, Psalm 2 next week and we're going to look at them as a window for understanding what the whole collection of all 150 psalms is. So, one of the particular concerns of the book of Psalms is the subject of blessing. So we can say this, the whole 150 psalms sum up to this. They're songs about the life that God will bless. Now, if you've agreed with me that the best that can happen to you in life is that you'll be blessed by God, then you'd be thinking, beauty, 150 songs that tell me how that can come about. Isn't that good? Here's the tip. Here's the clue. We're going to look at these carefully because then we'll know what God is pleased with and what he will bless. Psalm 1 shows us that there's two ways to live for individuals like you and me. Psalm 2 has a different framework. It talks about the life of blessing for the whole world. So Psalm 1 is individual, Psalm 2 is collective, it's for everyone. Two ways to live for individuals, two ways to live for the world. Well Psalm 1, I've given the title to my talk today, Two People, Two Paths, but Nothing in Common. Apart from the fact that we've got two arms, two legs and we take breath, right? The Bible wants us to be very plain, we we need to understand, we need to be careful about the company we keep. Because in the end, there's really only two sorts of people. There's two paths that are described in Psalm 1, and the rest of the Psalms are going to represent these in various ways. Remember, this is a window for understanding the whole collection. One of those paths will lead to God's blessing, and the other will lead to death. So the challenge, as every one of us reads Psalm 1, is which path are we on? And if we're on the one that leads to death, we ought to make an urgent correction and jump onto the one that leads to blessing because that would make sense. Well, the person God blesses is pictured in uh, verse 1. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Notice that there's three things that are not characteristic of a blessed person. So blessed is the man who walks not, nor stands, nor sits. Three things, negatives. Right, so these, these are three things to avoid. Now we need to pay a bit of attention to some of these words and work out what they mean so that we can get to the heart of what it means to be blessed by God. Blessed means to enjoy very favourable circumstances. Blessed, to be blessed by God means that other people will look at you admiringly and say, oh, isn't, isn't that a life worth living? That's an enviable kind of life. The word blessed is such a rich word that you can almost sum it up by saying, congratulations. The kind of life you've got, congratulations. But more than that, it's almost as though God's saying, congratulations. That's the way life ought to be lived. That's the life that works. There's lots in life that's confusing and troubling, isn't there? Would you agree? There's lots of, lots in life that's confusing and troubling. And so a blessed life is one that works out in most circumstances. Because bad stuff's always going to happen. But a blessed life is one that seems to be able to navigate its way around those bad things and still come out successful. So the person God blesses, there's three things that the blessed one does not do. They walk, stand and, they don't walk, stand or sit. Now they're all fixed attitudes. They're all attitudes of thinking, behaving and belonging that have been set, set in concrete you might say. Now that word, the walk there, uh, means a consistent pattern. It's, it's language that's used across the Bible. Um, so old-fashioned Christians used to get up next to each other and say, how's your walk with the Lord, brother? In other words, how's it going spiritually? Uh, that's what a walk is. How's it going? The blessed person walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Counsel means advice. It means getting tips on how you should live. So the blessed person, the, the, the person who wants God's blessing, will be careful about who they take, take advice on life from. And they won't be looking to wicked people for advice on how to live. Now, a wicked person is another way of saying an unrighteous person, a person who's not in right relationship with God. In fact, a wicked person is someone who just disregards God's way. So you need to be very careful that your advice on what matters in life, your priorities in life are not set by people who disregard God and his word. So do you desire the blessing of God? Then avoid advice on how to live from people who disregard him. Now that's a challenge for us. If you own a TV, chances are you spend more time watching it than you do reading your Bible. Chances are. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's been my experience mostly. How much programming is made by people who have a high regard for God's word? Is any. That's why Bible reading is so important. Greg promoted this before, this idea of reading the Bible every day and trying to get through it all in a year. Um, if your only Bible input is half an hour on a Sunday, 
chances are you watch more TV in a week than Bible input in probably a year or internet and all the other stuff. Where are you getting your advice on how to live? Now Greg was talking about some of the challenges that are facing us at the moment. Things have happened in Australian society that were unimaginable 30 years ago. And you know how the social revolutionaries have won the day? They've made lifestyles that people couldn't have imagined 30 years ago normal by the way they're represented in TV, on soap operas and comedies. They've normalised certain lifestyles to the point where people go, what's the big deal? If they want to live that way, that's okay by me. The subtle wearing down of Christian principles and Christian values has happened because people have been looking at the telly and thinking, what's the big deal? And we've been worn down. We need to be careful where we get our advice on how to live. So who or what most shapes your thinking and decision making? Now, the idea of standing there, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners. The person who wants to be blessed won't stand in the way of sinners. We hear the, the phrase to take a stand against something. So we're told to take a stand against sexual harassment or bullying or racism. And they're all good things to take stands against. But we're familiar with the idea of taking a stand. It means declaring your loyalty for a position. A person who wants to be blessed by God will not declare loyalty for a lifestyle that's in opposition to God and his word. We're not going to take a stand with ways of life that are against God and his word. Now the person who wants to be blessed by God um, won't sit in the seat of scoffers. Well that means to be associated with company. It's an image which comes from being invited to dine with someone. So when you're invited to dine with someone, it means that you are associated with them. We talk about having your place at the table, uh, so say at the board table or something like that. Uh, it means to be associated with something in a very close partnership. Now, the person blessed by God doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, this represents a big danger to us too. Right? A scoffer is not just a lawbreaker, they're someone who doesn't just disregard God's law, they rubbish it. In fact, scoffers of the kind that's being mentioned here are people that make light of serious things. Have you ever noticed that there's people who do that? Every now and again you'll hear some comedian who comes out with some crack about Jesus and then the people will say, oh, that was pretty controversial. And that comedian will say, nothing's off limits. Everything is fit for being made a joke of. And that's just not true and everybody knows it. Because I've never yet heard a comedian make a joke about cancer. Because there's nothing funny about people dying of cancer. There are some things that deserve to be treated with seriousness, reverence and respect. And when people rubbish them, we need to be very, very careful that that attitude doesn't rub off on us. Now, Greg was praying before about working in workplaces where the things that we prize as Christians are treated with disrespect. That happens a lot, doesn't it? Right. But there are certain sorts of work where it happens more than others, where the assumptions and the attitudes that people bring to work with them are actually quite opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And the way that people talk about that around the staff room table has this way of suggesting that only morons believe that. 
Now, I've had people say, you don't believe that old stuff, do you? Well, it depends which old stuff they mean. But sometimes I have to say, yes, I do believe that old stuff. And there's some of that old stuff that we just have to keep believing. Because the gospel is ancient, but it's always true. But it will always have a capacity to offend people. Now, the danger of this is, who likes being laughed at? Does anybody here seriously enjoy being scoffed at? Oh, he's that person, she's that person who believes that old stuff that we've all grown out of. That's the danger of the scoffer. And you might just think to yourself, it's just too hard. It's just too hard believing this because I don't want to be unpopular. I don't want to be the one left out at the staff room table. I don't want to be the one left off the invitation list. The scoffer represents a serious threat to Christian devotion. So beware who and what you seek to belong to is the story there. A person desiring the blessing of God is going to avoid the fellowship of people who mock what should be regarded with reverence. Yeah, what we see here is downward progress. Walk, stand and sit. Walking is sort of keeping company. Standing means you've stuck around long enough, you've been loyal to it. But sitting down indicates a real level of commitment. And so there's this progress there which we're warned about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands, nor stands in the seat of sin, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's this downward trajectory there. And so the, the threat to, to God's people in Psalm 1 is of seduction by the world. Jesus spoke about it. He says we're to be in the world but not of it in John 17. You can't avoid being in the world, but you're not to be shaped by the world. Paul says the same thing in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. So the kind of company that you choose to hang around with, if you're walking, standing and sitting with people whose ideas are opposed to God, it will wear you down and you need to be careful. Now my rule on this is simple, we can't afford to cloister ourselves off in, in monasteries, that's not the Christian way. Uh, we can't avoid contact with the world. Uh, in fact, how could we go on with Christian mission if we avoided all contact with people who already love the Lord Jesus? We, you can't do that. But my simple rule is this. If they're having more impact on me than I am on them, then the balance is in the wrong direction. So if all your friends are non-Christians and you're taking on board whatever it takes to hang around with them in a way that won't cause them any trouble at all, chances are they're having more of an effect on you than you are on them. And that's when you need to be careful. So the antidote to the threat of seduction is that a person would continually meditate on God's word. Now you'll see if you're following the outline that by the end of it we're going to have two sentences that will sum this whole psalm up. So the person God blesses continually meditates on God's word. Um, So we've seen three things that the blessed person doesn't do. Now we've got two that they do. His delight is in the law of the Lord. But, right, so in strong contrast to what we've seen in verse 1, the blessed person takes delight in God's law and on his law he meditates day and night. Now delight means to take pleasure in something. Do you find God's word a pleasure? Uh, Later on in the Psalms we'll read that... um, that God's word is sweeter than honey to my taste, says the psalmist. 
Do you take delight in God's word? Um, I'm here to tell you, when, when you get serious about reading God's word, it does become delightful. Uh, I read it every day and I often find things there that I've read before that I find surprising this time and I read them again and I think, oh boy, that makes sense. And it helps me see how life works. If you get a regular habit of Bible reading, I, I promise you God will honour that and you'll find it more and more and more delightful. It will become a pleasure. You'll look forward to it because it just makes sense where nothing else does. So if you haven't begun a habit of daily Bible reading or regular Bible reading, can I urge you to do so because it's just good fun. It really is. Uh, make time. It's worth it. Uh, when we read of uh, the person delighting in God's law, that means the, in God's instruction. It's not just God saying, don't do that, don't do that. God's law is much bigger than that. Uh, it means what God wants us to know so that we can live well. Uh, God's law is a positive, they're, they're life affirming. In Deuteronomy 32, when Moses is telling them the law, uh, he, he tells them that these laws are no empty word, they're, 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 they're life. Do you want to live well? Do you want to live a life that pleases God? Do you want a life that's blessed by God? Then live by his word. Because God's a good and a kind God. He's a merciful God. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He tells us what we need to know so we can live in ways that please him that actually work out very well for us. Now to meditate, sometimes people are spooked by the word meditate because they think it's something that only Eastern religions do. Well, Christian meditation is different from Eastern religious meditation because that kind of meditation, they want to empty their mind. But Christian meditation wants to focus the mind on something, right? And so a person who... Uh, is blessed by God, meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. To focus your mind on some good thing, some positive thing. Now, I've heard it said, if you know how to worry, you already know how to meditate. Because worrying is fixing your mind on some bad thing. But godly, biblical meditation means to fix your mind on something good. And this would be a good antidote to anxiety which seems to be creeping up on us. There's there's more and more anxious, depressed people. There's plenty in the world that will make you anxious and depressed, but there's plenty in the word that will anchor you to truths that will make your life secure. So meditate on God's word day and night. What are you going to meditate on? Well, good things. My mum used to say to me, I got into music at a fairly early age and mum didn't always like the records I brought home. And she'd say, does that pass the Philippians 4.8 test? Philippians 4.8, Paul writes, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So there's something you can meditate on. If you haven't got anything else to meditate on, memorise Psalm 4, uh, Philippians 4 verse 8 and make that your goal to meditate on that and then that's a grid by which you can run all of your other meditations through is this honourable is this just, is it pure is it lovely, is it commendable is it true they're the things to fix your mind on and to turn over over and over, day and night so a person desiring the blessing of God will meditate on the word of God, not on the counsel of the wicked Where are you getting your advice on what life's about? 
God's word or from the world. So the person God blesses continually meditates on God's word and will live securely and fruitfully. There's a promise. Now in the culture from which the Bible came, the ancient Near East, the countries there were dry and arid with very, very low rainfall. So there's a a map from space of, of Egypt. And the only things that grow in Egypt are along the Nile Valley. So the only place you could cultivate fruit and, and, and crops was in a river valley. And that's the image that we've got here in Psalm 1 verse 3. The person who meditates day and night, the person who rejects the advice of wicked people, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So that's an image of stability, of vitality, of life coursing through the roots and coming out through the leaves that yields its fruit in season that's an image of productivity its leaf does not wither in other words this is a plant that's not going to be scorched by the sun and just drop dead this this plant's going to survive in all that he does he prospers now that doesn't mean you'll be rich if you if you meditate on god's word we're not talking physical we're not talking material prosperity necessarily What we're talking about is a life that works. I can't promise you that you'll become a millionaire if you read the Bible day and night. But I can promise you that your life will hold together if you sincerely obey God's word, even when life's at its worst. So stability, vitality, productivity, durability and prosperity, a successful life, that's what's promised to the person who meditates on God's word. Now the wicked aren't like that at all. So we've had comment about the righteous person, three things they don't do, two things they do, but now the wicked are dealt with in a sentence. Like useless chaff, verse 4. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Viewed from God's perspective, the wicked are not stable. They're not vital. They're not productive. They're not durable. And their lives will not be a success. You might look at wicked people and say, their life's working out much better than me, but wait till the end. But very often they're not in the meantime. But from God's point of view, those people are on a road that leads only to a bad destination. But the idea of chaff is separating the good part of the wheat from the bit that's only fit to be burnt because no one wants to eat it. So you've got to separate the kernel that can be ground down to make flour from the chaff that surrounds it. In the Middle East, it's still the practice today that what you do is you get the wheat that you've just harvested and you throw it up into the air and the good bit will fall to the ground but the wind will blow away the light chaffy bit that no one wants to eat. And the psalmist writes here, he says, that's what's going to happen to the wicked. The wicked will just get blown away and be burnt. So don't pin your hopes on the advice of the wicked because you're following advice from people that are going to be blown away. Don't walk with them, don't stand with them, don't sit with them. Because the wicked ones weigh in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Therefore, at the beginning of that verse is very important. Uh, There's natural consequences of fixing your thoughts, your behaviours and the associations on people who are in opposition, people who mock God and his word. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now this idea of standing in the judgment, have you ever seen 
court cases on the TV, maybe a TV drama or something. When the judge passes the sentence, the wicked is asked, the, the, the accused is asked to stand. And either the judge will say guilty or not guilty. If it's not guilty, the person in the stand walks away free. If they're guilty, they're led away in, in, in captivity, in custody. But the point is, their case has not stood up before the judge. Their case has not made sense. And that's what's happening here. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Their case will not pass the test of judgment day, whereas the righteous person will. So we're all going to meet God, aren't we? But for a person who's been declared righteous in Jesus, judgment day holds no threat, no fear. Because we know Jesus has already paid our price. He's already borne our grief. He's already paid for our sin. But the person who's decided to continue in rebellion against God will find that their case on judgment day just does not stand. And so like useless chaff, the wicked one's way is doomed to fail. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now when it says here that God knows the way of the righteous, that doesn't just mean he recognises it. It means that he authorises it. He says, that is a way that I approve of. I know that way. The way of the righteous is is a way that, that God approves of. That's what it means that he knows. He acknowledges it. But to perish, that's the destruction that's meted out by God. Now some people are uncomfortable with the idea of God being a God of judgment. But there's no escaping it. That's the way the Bible represents it. But judgment is both positive and negative. Because you see, the thing is, God's judgment will say, all right, you've been made righteous by my son. I judge in your favour. But people that have continued in their rebellion against God, God will say, you can have the consequences of your life. You didn't want me in time, you'll have to do without me in eternity. The natural consequences of decisions that we make now, God will give us on that day of judgment. But on that day of judgment, God's going to set things right that up until now have been wrong. And that's another aspect of God's judgment and his justice. So Psalm Psalm 1 shows us that there's two ways to live. You can live the way of the righteous or you can live the way of the wicked. Uh, Psalm 1 begins with blessed is the man, but it finishes with the fate of the wicked. They're going to perish. That means that the content of Psalm 1 is extremely urgent. Dale Ralph Davis, a wonderful American commentator, he says, nothing is so crucial as your belonging to the congregation of the righteous. So is your name amongst those who have been made righteous by God, someone whose way God knows, someone who God says, yes, that person is living a life that I will bless. It all comes from knowing God through his son, the Lord Jesus. So life's serious. We're all of us headed towards judgment. Uh, There's a way that leads to blessing. There's a way that leads to death. And both of those will be perfectly fair outcomes when the God of the universe casts his judgment. So Psalm 1 is a psalm that points out that there's two kinds of people and there's two paths, but those people and those paths have nothing in common. 
Psalm 1, sum it up. The person God blesses meditates continually on God's word. And because of that, they'll live securely and fruitfully. But like useless chaff, the wicked one's way is doomed to fail. There's two roads. There's two destinations. Jesus used that image as well. In Matthew 7, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So Jesus agreed with the idea of there being two roads, two destinations. The hard road, the narrow road, is the right road. It won't make you popular necessarily, but it's the road that leads to a success now because it works. And it's a road that will lead to eternal life when we pledge our trust to the Lord Jesus. Now, I talked before about a prosperous life, about, about a life that's blessed by God, uh, a life of focused meditation on God's word. It works. Uh, have you heard of John Bunyan? John Bunyan very famously wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know where he wrote it? In prison. He was in prison for 14 years for nothing more than wanting to preach God's word. And so they locked him away for 14 years. It was said of John Bunyan that if you pricked him, he'd breed, he'd bleed Bible. He had so much Bible in him that there in Bedford Jail, he could write this enduring literary masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress. If you pricked him, he'd bleed Bible. That's because he meditated on it day and night. So even in prison, his life held together. But an example closer to home, um, when my grandmother was 93 years old, uh, she was living in Brisbane on her own. My grandfather had died some years previously and she rang my father one day and she said, I've been followed home. And a man observed her taking money out at the bank, followed her home, broke down her door, came in, threw her to the ground, broke some ribs and took off with her bag. Now, my dad being in Melbourne, he couldn't get up until the next day. That was the earliest plane he could get. And so when he got there, he said, how did you go last night in the house all by herself? She said, I went through my Bible verses and I went through my hymns. So in the dark of night, having just been assaulted, having all of that taken from her, being on her own, she didn't freak out. She went to the word that she'd stored up. Now that's what the Bible means by a prosperous life. A life that holds together. A life that succeeds when life's at its roughest. And that's the promise for the person who meditates day and night on God's law. There are two roads, there are two kinds of people, there are two destinations, but even while we're on the road of the righteous... This life that's grounded in God's word that begins when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, it works and it pays off. Let's pray. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for these wonderful words. We pray that as we begin a series of studies on the book of Psalms that you would speak to us and that you would help us to understand this precious part of your word, uh, even perhaps more than we do already. But help us to delight in your word. Help us to uh, to take pleasure in daily coming to it and, and feeding on it. And we ask that you would do as you've promised here, that you would make us like trees planted by water. 
we pray that you would uh, enable us to endure and to prosper and we pray that you would indeed uh, so direct us that we walk in paths that you are pleased to bless. And we pray all these things for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.